story as it goes, or as I sort of remember it, is that um, my sister Lydia, who is the next youngest, I was four and she was two, I was up on the platform and we sang, we were supposed to sing Away in the Manger or some Christmas song like that. And of course, as a four-year-old, some of you have, have uh, been nice to me and said I've got a nice voice. I have to let you know my sister is like light years ahead of me. And so I'm four years old. I'm the professional. I've sung in front of people like two times now. And so uh, we get up there and my sister freezes and, and is terrified and won't do anything. And so being uh, the older, encouraging brother that I am, I hit her and pushed her off of the stage. So then, of course, I was removed from the stage at that point. My sister was placed back on the platform, and she's never looked back since, basically. Uh, she sang the song alone that day, and then uh, she's continued on from there. So I, the reason I that because uh, you always knew that she was destined for greatness. In, in any uh, middle school, high school, musical, that type of thing, she was always singing. She was always kind of the center of the show. Uh, at the end of the day, she uh, went on to college and sang in numerous operas as the lead and then now has uh, got her master's in vocal pedagogy and got hired at a high school, a, a large high school with a whole rack of uh, trophies where they take the choir and competitions every year and that type of thing. And so she had really big shoes to fill when she took over that job and they've already uh, begun wanting their, winning their choir competitions and she has different soloists that she trains and that type of thing. But I'll tell you that as, as you, if you knew her and, and, and all of the friends who did, they are not surprised about that with my sister. They like, they just expected, okay, this is what she's going to do with her life. That's not always the case. Think back, if you will, to the last uh, reunion that you went to, your last high school reunion. Uh, you might find some different people there that you don't expect. Who were you shocked by when you went to that high school reunion? One of our friends, uh, when we went back to the high school reunion, he was someone who had barely gotten out of high school. Uh, he was very popular. He was a great athlete. Uh, but the final exam of the final class that he had to take at the end of it, uh, his younger brother was in the school. And so he got caught cheating off of his younger brother uh, at graduation and nearly didn't graduate because of that. So he was a, a mess. But then about a year or two years into college, all of a sudden he woke up and now he is, of all things, he is a teacher in a high school teaching global studies and teaching, and he's actually really well-known and well-renowned, well-respected as a teacher in his school. I don't go share all that with his students in his class. They probably don't need to know that. Uh, another person that we graduated high school with, one of our close friends, like a close friend that literally we rode in the limo together to the, uh, uh, to the prom, uh, he went into the military with honors, uh, came back from that and started working, I believe it was in a state senator's office, and so he was uh, involved in politics and those type of things. He literally robbed a bank. And after he robbed a bank, and the, the way we understand it, like he put up the hood, went in and robbed the bank and had like his finger in his pocket or something. I mean, I don't know if it was quite that bad, but he robbed a bank and got away with it for like one to two years, and eventually it caught up with him, and now he's doing some jail time. But both of those situations are shocking. Like when you realize, wait a minute, this person, we thought they were destined for one thing and now they're going in a different direction. And this is one area that you thought this person was destined for. It's, it's shocking when you realize what is going on with people or how does this work or how do all these things come together? You know, really, here's the bottom line and listen close to what I'm saying because today our scripture is clear. You and I have a common destiny. 
you and I need to understand that he is greater, as this sermon series is taking us through, he is greater than our destiny. So let's get our bearings together here. So I ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. If not, if you don't have one with you, you're welcome to use your iPhone app or something like that. version is a great way to get there. Or in the pews in front of you, you have Bibles there as well. And if you're using that Bible, we're on page 1254. Uh, so we want to get our bearings here. Let's understand we're, we're looking at the book of Hebrews. We've been in it for a few weeks, and I just want to get you there so you understand what we're doing. Uh, this letter is written to a group of Christians. Uh, they are uh, Christians who have converted from Judaism, so they're Hebrews who are uh, following Christ. They have gone through persecution where they have lost their homes, they have lost their families, they have lost everything to follow Christ. And now it seems like about 15 years or so has passed since the initial following that they have of Christ, and then now the persecution is about to go up another level. And the author of this letter, someone we don't know, we don't know who it is, we don't know if it's a man or a woman who wrote the book, uh, but as they are writing to them in Hebrews, they're writing to encourage them, and they are struggling to maintain their relationship with Jesus. They were struggling to hold fast, and as persecution is going to come, and as we look at history, this is probably the same timeline where Nero comes into power, and eventually, if you know the story of what happens, is Nero will burn Rome to the ground, and he will blame it on the Christians. This is what is happening in context here in the book of Hebrews. So they are struggling. They're struggling to hold fast. And maybe even some of you are here this morning where it comes to your faith in Jesus Christ. You're struggling to hold on to it. And there's this roller coaster of emotion that comes. And there's different times in your life that you go through. And you've got this up and down roller coaster. And so you may be feeling that way. And as things are intensifying, there's an encouragement that the author is trying to get to them. Now, let's be real. For the most part, it would be much easier for those Jews who are practicing Christianity, for them to fall back into the old patterns of religion and religiosity, it would be much simpler, much easier to do that. But his approach here, the author's approach here, is, is fascinating. It never says, this is what you need to do. Step one, step two, step three. Particularly in Hebrews chapter one, which we've already moved through. It never has these steps that you have to follow. Instead, he doesn't want you to do anything. He wants you, first and foremost, to know someone. And he is Jesus. In chapter 2, we see a warning, and this is where we began last week. Don't drift away. Don't compromise. And Mario gave a, a great illustration this last week with that compass and be able to say, okay, if you're aimed in one direction, if you're just one degree off, you're going to end up in a different spot altogether. And as you make that move to a different spot, it's going to take you away from where you were headed. We were talking about this in our small group last week. Uh, we had someone in our group who is actually a Coast Guard uh, boat captain. And so uh, as they were looking at the passage, he was looking and saying, you know what, yes, one degree off, you could literally be headed to Japan and end up in a whole different part of the world. You could end up uh, heading to Australia all because of one degree off, and that's where you end up. And you look and you, you don't know where you are, and it's all from being one degree off. This morning, I came in early as we was getting ready for everything today, and as you know, the parking lot was icy, and uh, Red Rose Landscaping is who we use here, and they come and go, and they do their thing, as some of you know those guys. Uh, 
he was here working this morning, Paul was, and literally I've seen the guy tear out bushes out of the ground in the summer. He's a very muscular guy. He's, he's able to do that. And he's out there on the ice, and he's trying to salt the ice and trying to get things ready in the little hill that we have going up to Main Street. He literally is at the top of the hill trying to push the salt thing across, and he just slid all the way down the hill back to the bottom. And like just this struggle that says it doesn't matter how strong you are if you're still drifting and being pulled away. And so the warning is don't be pulled away. Don't get lulled in. Specifically, and we've talked about this last couple weeks, but we're going to deal with it again today because they're going to come up again. It says don't get lulled. Don't slide back into an obsession. He's telling uh, the Hebrews don't get pulled in this obsession with angels. And we looked at it a couple weeks ago, and this, there's some misconceptions about angels, this idea that, that, that you and I both have, and the Bible never says that we have guardian angels. The Bible never says that when we die that we would become an angel or that a baby dies and they become an angel. The Bible never says that. The Bible never says if you see a light in the corner of your eyes or if you feel a brush on your skin or if there's uh, some music playing that you can't decipher, you can't figure out what it is, but it sounds like angelic music, that must be an angel. That just is not scriptural. That is not in the Bible. The Bible never says that angels would serve me or would serve you. Instead, we see angels constantly pointing back that they will serve and glorify Jesus Christ. And so what, what he's doing, the author here is doing, and he puts angels in their proper place, and he's going to do that again in our context today. But the question that was asked last time was, for which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? And the answer to that question is none, zero. That was never said. Today the author will put the angels in their place in a different, a different way. He looks at the readers. He writes this letter and he says, I know that persecution is tough. I know that it would be easy for you to slide back into the way that things were. I know it's intense. I know that it's easy to get lulled back into religious practices and religiosity and all that goes into that. But please don't do that because it's not about what you do. It's who you know. So please don't go there. Don't get lulled in. You are destined for more. And the scripture is true for you and for me today. If you are here today, you were, we were destined for more. So if you have your white sheet of paper that came in your bulletin this morning, we just have three quick notes that I want you to take this morning because it really deals with this idea of destiny and what Hebrews is teaching us along these lines. And the first one is this. We are the apex of God's creation. That's a fill-in. We are the apex of God's creation. We're in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. It says this, it is not to the angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which you're speaking, but it is the place where someone has testified. Now, this is not a senior moment. The author isn't old and they forgot who this was. They actually are about to verbatim quote from Psalm chapter 8. So it's a little bit of a loss in translation. It is not the idea that they don't know where it was written, but they don't want to declare that. They want the, the reader to fill in the blank as to where this was written. Because again, this, this reader is uh, the Hebrew, the Jew, knows the scripture as well as the author does. Verse 6, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, and son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. And putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Now this is amazing. This statement is really amazing. God made everything, made the world for humans. 
all of creation was supposed to be under their control. Do you remember when you read the Genesis account when God created the world? Do you remember the climax, the apex, the end, the, the, the most glorious thing that was created? Do you remember what it was? It was you. That was the greatest creation. That was the greatest thing that Jesus could put together in, that, in the garden. That was the greatest thing. Creation was made for all of us. We see here, the scripture lays it out as a son of man. And now as we look back at that, sometimes we get, we get distracted between Jesus calling himself son of man. And here it's talking about all of mankind, the idea of son of man. Now Jesus was doing that so he would make the connection to you and I. We are all mankind. He was one of us. So as a son of man, as part of mankind, all creation was made for us. And for a little while, it says, while here on earth we were, or we are, lower than the angels. But a little while means it's temporary. It would be the same as, uh, we, as a king who has a, a son or a daughter who is meeting with a tutor so that they could get their, uh, their education in order. That doesn't change the position of the royalty of that of that child, that the tutor is still maybe above them for a while, but that doesn't mean that that child is no longer an heir to the throne. So just for a little while, the destiny has changed. But the destiny of the child is ultimately is greater than the tutor. So what you need to think about and need to realize this morning as a ground of, of where we are is to, to say, wait a minute, you and I will one day rule and reign over the angels. And we spent a number of, uh, of weeks even talking about this, but anytime that we see angels in Scripture, we see people laying on their face before them. We see angels as warriors, as mighty, powerful. If you were in a fight, you would want an angel on your side. They are not the cherubs, the sweet little things that we see in my precious moments. Like this is not what the Scripture teaches with angels. And so in your mindset, you need to get this straight. So maybe you need to look to your left and to your right and look at that person next to you and say, you are going to be more powerful than Michael. You're going to be more powerful than Gabriel, the archangel. And you're like, okay. This guy? You know what I mean? Like, are you serious? But that's what Scripture teaches us. Some of you are taking a second glance saying, no way. Believe it. That's really where we're coming from. So first, we are the apex of God's creation. Secondly, we are the offspring. That's a fill-in. We are the offspring of a fallen race. Yet at the present, this is the second half of verse, two, or verse 8 in chapter 2. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. Now, isn't this the understatement of the year? Is all creation at this moment, at this time, subject to man? Look around. It is, it is not. Not in the least bit. Uh, do we have control of it? Hardly. In the past century, 100 million people have died of unnatural causes from war, uh, apart, excuse me, from war or disease or disaster. What that means is a hundred million people have died from crime, genocide, or starvation outside of war and outside of disease. This is, does this sound like an earth? Does this sound like creation that we are, that humankind is in control of? 
No, and we see how fragile, even in the mid-2000s or late 2000s, see how fragile even our economy is when it comes to being in charge of even that one small part of creation. Uh, it, it's, there seems like no solution will work. For those on the right, they may say, well, the government is the problem. But then we all know stories of corporations that are abusing and hurting the freedoms. They are, they are taking too much and hurting others. And then there's some that are on the other side of the coin. They say, well, there's no, no, no business is the problem. If we let things get too large, we, so we need to have the government come in and be able to keep things in line and be able to keep them from getting too far off track. But you and I both know that that corruption, that when we see that corruption, that that is just as bad. And there's another group that says, well, maybe education will fix the problems. If we educate people and allow them to see where they're going wrong, that will fix it. But really all that does is create a world, a society that is prideful and arrogant and they're stuck with a whole different set of sophisticated problems and snobbery and it's a mess there as well. So what is the problem then? We are. We are a fallen race. We are the fallen offspring in a fallen race. Romans 3.23, it tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of God's destiny, of God's plan, of God's plan for you and for me. And because of Adam's sin, mankind's sin, because of that, as offspring of that, here are some of the things that are broken because of that. And this all happened in the garden, and we are dealing with it every single day. There was an immediate loss of intimacy with God. Sin does that. That's Genesis 3, verse 8. Secondly, there's a daily struggle of pain, temptation, and guilt. We all deal with these things every single day, and it happened because of sin in the garden. Genesis 3, verse 16. Thirdly, the progressive death of the body. Some of you feel this morning when you got out of bed or when you went and slid across the parking lot this morning, you feel a little bit closer to those ailments that are all around you. You said, man, I am, I'm not as young as I used to be. I'm a little bit closer to death than I used to be. I don't know why that's so funny. But it's true. That's Genesis 5, 5. But really, this is it. The ultimate and eternal separation from God is what happened there in the garden of sin in Genesis 3, 22. That's it. That's the bottom line. Remember I said at the beginning in the introduction, we each have a common destiny. You know what that is? eternal separation from God. But, however, He is greater than our destiny. He is greater than our destiny. We are the apex of God's creation, yes. We are the offspring of a fallen race, yes. But we are the object of God's relentless love, never giving up. Verse 9. But we do see Jesus, who is made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. 
God is in continued pursuit after man. He doesn't love us while we were yet sinners. That wasn't the only time that he loved us, but he also loves us when we scorn and we reject him. And we have loving intentions towards one another and not towards him, but still he pursues after us. In the Old Testament, we have the story that the prophet Hosea, who is pursuing after his wife, who is a prostitute, and again and again and again, she fights with him. And he continues to pursue. God is a guest appearance in humanity. And we see that in Bethlehem. He shows up. He interacts when he doesn't have to. Since man could not see God, God came into man's world, into humanity. Think of the love that Christ had for fallen humanity to lay aside or divest himself of all of his glory and all of his splendor, the exalted place that he had to come in heaven to find his place on earth here in Bethlehem in a manger as a child. He lived among us, but he did so without sin. And then this passage shows us the God's sacrifice that he made at the cross. Jesus says, no greater love hath any man than this that would lay down his life for his friends. And he did that for you and for me. He, the innocent, he offered himself as a sacrifice in my place and in yours. He paid the sin of our, he paid our sin debt to satisfy the Father's holiness and justice. But most importantly, there at the end of verse 9, God offered Grace, the wonder of wonders, is that God, in all of his splendor, and all of his glory, when he sees you and sees me, he sees us through grace. Whoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why? Because of who Jesus is, the only begotten Son. And although we have no merit, God loves us anyway. At the core of my faith, I believe that Jesus died for me on the cross, for my sins, on what would be my absolute worst day. And that means that that absolute worst day, I hope is in my past, but that means that that day is in the future. If I fall off the wagon and make an absolute, complete fool of myself, Jesus Christ still died on the cross for my sins, for me, that day. And that is the grace of God. He offers every person the opportunity to receive forgiveness through his sacrifice, his son. We call this grace. So we all have a common destiny, but he is greater than our destiny. As we look at Christmas, many people see this incredible epic, this story. They all see it as a wonderful, fantastic, tall tale. It's a great story. But maybe it isn't all factual. Jesus was a great guy, and I'm okay with studying his teachings so that I get a moral compass or a moral code, but I'm not quite ready to be able to put him at that spot where I would worship him as God. And I believe that's why we're looking at Christmas today through the lens of Hebrews, because that's really the context which the author is coming at. Be able to point us back and says, don't be swayed, don't be pulled aside, don't, be, don't slide off to the side, don't miss the main thing. He is greater. He is greater. You see, here are the undisputed facts about Jesus. 
And it doesn't matter what context you're in or where you are. If you are an atheist, if you're a secular humanist, it doesn't matter where you are coming from. These are the undisputed facts about Jesus. Jesus existed. Jesus performed miracles. Jesus died on the cross in Jerusalem. And Jesus was reported to have risen again. But he is greater than those things. He's greater than those simple facts. Why? Because those things talk about a man, and he is greater than that. He is bigger than that. He is more important than that. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. He is God. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. I'm just going to demonstrate this quickly. If you're using those pew Bibles, it's on page 1072. 1072. Baby Jesus here is eight days old. He's eight days old, and so what you saw this morning played out in the pageant has happened. Jesus is born. He's come to Bethlehem, and eight days later, he is taken to the temple. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. Now there is a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen, what? The Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went to the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was the custom of the law required, Simeon took him up in the arms and praised God, saying, so they come into the temple courts, and this old man Simeon, he just kind of swoops in, picks the kid up because he has been waiting for this. He's been waiting for the coming Messiah. He's been waiting years. He's an old man. But the Holy Spirit revealed to him that one day he would get to see the Messiah that the Israelites have been waiting for more than 400 years. And so he takes that baby in his arms, eight days old. And this is what he says in verse 29. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised... You may now dismiss your servant in peace. Simeon says, I can die now. I have seen what I was supposed to see, what you promised me. It's time. Verse 31, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and to the glory of your people Israel. He's declaring this over the child that he is holding in his hands. He's not just going to be for Israel. He's going to be for the Gentiles, for all people, just like the, the angels had said out in the field. Verse 33, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is what? This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be spoken against. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul as well. I don't know about you this morning. God's word has that ability. As Simeon was talking and prophesying over this child. He said, this child is going to be divisive. This child is going to be someone that Israel is going to have to deal with. And you and I know that today, 2,000 years later, the Jews, the Hebrews, the Israelites still have to deal with this Jesus. Has your heart been revealed this morning? It said that it would reveal Hearts. I pray the Holy Spirit has stirred something inside of you. 
I pray that you, as I've been speaking this morning, something is making you uncomfortable. That prodding. Here it's a sword, like a sword piercing your soul, this passage says. Today you have the opportunity. The opportunity to step into the destiny that God has created for you and for me. You know, you've got something that angels are jealous of. Do you realize that? There's a third of the angels we read in Scripture. A third of the angels turned their back and rebelled against God. But Jesus did not take on angel flesh. Jesus took on human flesh. He could have, but he chose to take on ours. And 1 Peter says that the angels long to look at the gospel. They long for the opportunity to be able to be reconciled with God the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. That means that all day they stand before the throne of God and they long to be there, to be connected to who he is. On our TV shows, angels have always seemed special and close to God. You can only imagine in heaven, they probably have a show up there called Touched by a Human. Angels are actually longing for the relationship that you and I can have with Jesus Christ. Today it's my prayer that you would decide to proclaim publicly to the world that he is greater. He is greater than your sin. He is greater than the trappings, the rules, the regulations of religion and religiosity because that was what was going on there, that they were all caught in those trappings. I I pray that you would see that he is greater than that. Pray that you would see that he is greater than your family drama. Christmas is perfect time for all of that to come out. I pray that you would see that he is greater than your desire to please, your desire to overspend. I pray that you would see that he is greater than your calendar this December. I pray that you would see he is greater than the loss and the pain that you are going through this time of year because of a loss that you've gone through. I pray that you would see that he is greater than your own unbelief in him. The angels don't have the opportunity to reconcile with God the Father. But you do, through his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. As the band comes forward, we're going to sing this morning one song in closing, and we're so grateful that you decided to be here this morning. But as we look at this Christmas season, I pray that you don't see Jesus as as part of this, this beautiful Christianity kind of way of living. But you see him as greater. He is God. Greater than the angels. Greater than anything that we could ever drum up here. He is God. And because of that, that is why the angels came and bowed before the manger. That is why all of the shepherds came and bowed before the manger. That is why the wise men came from the east and they came and bowed before. And that is why you and I need to bow and worship before him today. And so as we sing this song in closing, we will sing those words, here I am to worship, here I am to bow. I'll be in the back. I would love to talk to any of you if you'd like to get into this a little bit deeper. If today is the day that you make a decision, please come back and make a decision. Talk with me to be able to say, okay, what does it actually look like to set things in order in my life, to align myself in a way 
that accepts the fact and actually speaks out the fact that he is greater. Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for who you are. As your scripture said this morning, Lord, that your words, they can pierce the soul. And if that has happened here today, Lord, I pray that you would work and move. Lord, as we are in the middle of this Christmas season, Lord, we will celebrate, we will gather together, celebrate your birth and your birthday this weekend. We start even today. Lord, allow us to put things in their proper place. Just as the author of Hebrews here is putting angels in their proper place and aligning us with weight that things really work, Lord, I pray that we would align ourselves in a proper way as well. We pray that there would be someone here that would step into the destiny that you have called each and every one of us to. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.